This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everybody, this is Phil Town. And this is Danielle Town. Welcome to Invested, the podcast where we are studying hard <laughs> to learn how to invest properly, like Warren Heck Buffett. Yeah. Heck yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Investing properly. Hard. That's a loaded term right there, investing properly, particularly when yeah. you and I might disagree what investing even is. Which we often do. Which we often do. But um, my personal view, starting off with 2019 here, is that investing is only happening when you have near certainty that you are going to make money over the next 10 years in this thing that you just bought because you bought it below its value with a margin of safety. That's investing. Yeah, I think you've kind of convinced me about that. I think the important element is near certainty. Like we can never be totally certain. There's all kinds of stuff that can happen that can affect a given company or a given industry that we can't predict. And I think actually 2018 was a great example of that with a lot of political stuff interfering with the markets um, in ways that even many seasoned investors didn't predict. And I think more of the same will happen in 2019. So there's always sort of these outside forces that can affect things. But yeah, I think, I think for me, Let's have this be our first inaugural 2019 episode. What is investing to you? It's like a a book report from oh, third grade. I don't I don't really even want to hear the responses coming in. Dad, what here's is what investing, investing to is you. to me. Okay, investing, investing is to you. Investing to me is when you fully understand the thing that you're investing in. That's investing to me. Because you're not speculating at that point. Now Yes, like there may be outside things that happen, right? And we expect that. But if if I totally understand the vehicle that I'm putting money into, whether it's a house or a public company or a private company or what else is there, like bonds or something? <laughs> what else is there? I don't even know what bonds. Um, then, so I clearly shouldn't be buying bonds since I don't understand them. Um then that's an investment. That's a choice, a conscious choice about what that thing is and that I'm believing in its future. What do you think about that? I think it's pretty good. And I, I'm going to come over to your side a little bit here um, because I've long sort of held that throwing your money into an index and hoping it goes up is speculating. But I will say... But Buffett himself says that that's not speculating. I know. And so I'm going to I'm gonna back up a little bit there and I'll, I'll give you a a reason why that is investing. Okay. If you put, essentially what you're doing when you're putting your money into an index, um, particularly in the United States, but anywhere where you do it, an index is a simply a stock which parallels the market. It says, okay, whatever the market does, goes up, goes down, then that's what I'm going to do too as the index. <clears throat> but 
And, and so in a sense, that sounds like speculating because you don't have any idea what you own. You just own a pile of things. But what makes it not speculating is essentially that you are highly certain, nearly certain that the United States will be more prosperous in 10 years than it is today. And if you buy virtually everything in it, you buy all the 500 biggest companies by owning the index uh, of the S&P 500, then you're going to participate in that profitable investment. So in that sense, yes, you're, you're betting on America. If you were to do that in Turkey or Argentina, you may be speculating your mind out right there. But I think the United States, that's a good bet. Yeah, or the UK right now. Um, yeah, I agree with that. And and that's what Buffett and Munger said at the annual meeting that we went to last year. They said, basically, if you put your money in an index fund, you're betting on the US. And, and they think the US is a good investment. Mm-hmm. And they use the word investment. Mm-hmm. And it, it, it actually also makes me think sort of the opposite of what you just said, like Argentina, Turkey potentially speculative uses of money. But there are other countries that are comparatively extremely stable that maybe would be good investments. That would actually be interesting to think about what indices you would buy in other non-U.S. companies. I know we have a lot of listeners from outside of the U.S. And, uh, you know, buying a U.S. index isn't always the first thought for everybody. So, It'd be interesting, actually, now that I like I live in Switzerland, maybe the Swiss index would be something I should look into. Well, it would be something to look into. And so would the index for China and so would the index for Europe. So these are all potential investments. And a lot of advisors <clears throat> will use the indexes um, across these major markets, Europe, China and the U.S., maybe Japan. Um as a way of diversifying an entire portfolio. They'll just buy the hmm. indexes in all those places. Hmm. <clears throat> but, I, you know, I think obviously when we're talking about, I'm not trying to be derogatory toward Turkey or Argentina. I think both of them are really exciting yeah, countries. I do too. I think Turkey in particular actually has some strong investment. Um, yeah, enormous arguments. potential. But there, there are issues of stability, issues of, of law, issues of the middle class. All of those things um, impact dramatically on your ability to predict where things will be in 10 years. And so the less you can predict, the more speculative you are. And at some place, you cross the line into speculation from investment, right? Mm-hmm. And and so what we're trying to do here with this podcast, obviously, is to look at individual companies and how we would look at individual companies to determine that they're really a, a good investment. And we could look at an index the same way. We, You know from three years of this, we're basically saying, do you, are you capable of understanding the investment that you're making? So if we're looking at the index in the U.S., are you capable of making a decision that in the long run, the United States will be more prosperous than it is today? Mm-hmm. You say, okay, yeah, I think I'm capable of that. Second, does the United States have a moat of some sort that protects it from outside competition? Mm-hmm. And the answer would be a little bit difficult to come up with exactly what that moat would be, right? But we well, would say... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I, uh, some of the obvious things is we have a, a, a huge technology advantage 
in terms of our entrepreneurship in America, the gigantic mm-hmm. amount of venture capital that we have compared to anywhere in the world to sponsor startups in garages that can turn into Google and Apple. We, we have that better than anybody in the world. That's a, a huge secrets advantage, I think, number one. Um, number two, we have a very, very prosperous economic system in spite of what a lot of people are are saying about it right now, our poor people are middle class in much of the rest of the world. Uh, I mean, the rest of the world calls poverty a dollar ninety a day, and there's virtually no one in the United States who isn't crazy, who isn't getting by on more than that because we have such a strong, uh, you know, social safety net and so many community poverty programs and so many things people can do. So. I mean, really, when we look at what we would maybe consider an American ghetto, it's really just a high crime area where people live with windows and with, they've got doors, they've got kitchens, they've got showers, they've got hot water, they've got cars. So it's those are really powerful moats that the United States has that, that generate more prosperity all the time. So it's an economic system that generates more prosperity. Well, I'll steal from you because you also put in our book, and, and this is what reminded me as I read this passage you wrote in our book, Invested, that the U.S. has a literal moat of two oceans on either side. Literally, we are protected in a way that like I live in Europe now, Switzerland is certainly not protected in that same way. And I can tell you Switzerland behaves differently because of that. Hmm. So it's interesting to think about the geographical um, uh, protections that the U.S. has. And, and other countries, think of Australia. Australia has an incredible moat, literally. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Plus, it's I mean, super hard to get to. That's definitely <laughs> part of it. Um, that protects us from not competition per se, although certainly it makes things more expensive to get to the United States markets. They got to cross the boat. But True. in addition, it makes us more protected from losing a war. Yeah, I was example. thinking about security. Yeah, we're a more secure nation because of that. Um, so those are all reasons to think we have a pretty good moat in the United States compared to most countries, maybe compared to all countries in the world. And then who's running things? That's the management team. <laughs> yes, yeah. some, some controversy about that right now. The less now. said I mean, on that, the better. <laughs> <laughs> we all have our ideas about how that's going, and then uh, and but as Charlie says, you just hope you you know have a management team with integrity and yes. talent. Now, yes, I, I would argue and we that would in our like current, to have that, but we can't like count that. on it. Right, you'd like to have that. I mean, strangely, I think right now you could argue that our our leader has. Uh, you know, a bad score on integrity, perhaps, say anything, right? Um, but maybe a bit talented at actually getting things done. So anyway, we're not going to get into that. But um, so management team. And then finally, can you get this at a bargain somehow? Yeah. And of course, if you don't have a way of judging what the value of the market is, then you just keep buying it no matter what. That's what Charlie and, and, and Warren are saying, or Warren anyway. I don't think Charlie's saying it too much, but Warren. You know, this would be interesting to talk about, actually. I just read Fred Wilson's blog on predictions for 2019. Who's He's uh, the founder of Union Square Ventures and a very, very famous venture capitalist, kind of like the godfather of venture capitalism. Uh, in the U.S. and he, um, you don't you don't need to like read it quickly or anything. <laughs> but he said he said that 
Uh, oh, now I lost my... Tr- oh, here's what he said. He said that um, he thinks a rough floor on U.S. stocks is going to be 15 times earnings. And I thought that was very interesting considering our extensive extensive discussions about what multiples of earnings are considered reasonable. And we've always said 15 times is kind of high, but like, okay, because it's double the private level, right? Well, it's historically where the average is. It is? Yeah. It's exactly the average, well, almost exactly the average PE ratio for the S&P 500 for the last 100 years has been 15. So okay, basically, so what this Fred is, is saying not a is that, revelatory statement. Well, well, it, it is a bit interesting. I thought it was very interesting. Go ahead. 15, 15 is not a low. Like we have had numerous times where we've got into single digits over the last hundred years. Uh, 15 is considered average. And then what we're doing is we're coming into that from a higher place. And in the past 10 years, that's where the market has stopped and turned around and gone up at 15 times earnings. So there's, you'd almost have to make an argument that the new low is 15 times earnings. Yeah, rather so, than, so that's what that's what he was saying, and yeah. I thought that I thought that that was kind of a big thing to say that the market is now. Uh, he didn't say this, but he's almost saying it is permanently at a new level, a new uh, standard deviation kind of high, different than it used to be. Such well, he's, that he's not alone. Jeremy Grantham has made the same point. He's a really good. Uh, rule one type investor. There's There's been a number of people who've come out and just said with the new uh, level of intervention in the markets by the Federal Reserve that there there's now a kind of a floor on the markets. That is the buyers are going to come back in and bid up the market because they're, they have a high degree of certainty or a high degree of comfort that the Federal Reserve is simply not going to let a big recession or a depression happen. They're going to be extremely mm-hmm. interventional mm-hmm. and step in uh, to fix things. Now, counter to that is Ray Dalio. Oh, what did he say? Well, Ray's not picking numbers out there, but he is saying that we are at the end of both the short-term credit cycle and the long-term credit cycle. Okay, the long-term hold on. credit cycle. The short-term credit cycle and the long-term credit cycle. What's the credit cycle? The credit cycle is a cycle of interest rates um, that is is a, essentially a creation of the money supply, an acceleration of the money supply that generates um, more jobs, more income, more oh, spending. Okay. Um, as credit expands in these good times, people borrow more They and more and more marginal borrowers are allowed to have loans from banks who are competing with each other. And gradually, uh, the amount of credit expands to a point where someone, banks or the shadow banking of you know venture capital or hedge funds, somebody starts saying, no, I don't think so. I think you're getting too far out there. You've got you don't have enough credit, you don't have enough money, you don't have enough income, whatever, and I'm not going to lend you money. So now you got to pay that, me back. Is that when interest rates are really high or interest rates are really low? Typically low. So everything's so going low, really, really good. Everything's going really well. There's lots of people who want money. Money is available. Right. There aren't any loaning, real problems loaning, loaning. out there. Okay. And then typically what happens in the short-term credit cycle is the Federal Reserve... Uh, thinks that the market is getting overheated. 
And as a result, too many people have credit and we're about to go into an inflationary spiral up and that's not good for the economy. And so the Federal Reserve raises their rates, which raises the rates on banks, which makes banks have to raise the rates on customers. And when when that happens, the marginal customers who just barely got a loan at, let's say, 3.5%, they just Mm -hmm. barely qualified, now their rate's 5% and they don't qualify. So now they got to pay back their money. And now it starts to shrink. The amount of credit starts to shrink. And as that happens, then essentially what happens is if I have $100,000 income and I borrow $10,000, that becomes somebody else's $110,000 income. And they're able to borrow $11,000. And that becomes somebody else's $121,000 income and they can borrow $12,000. And this sort of spirals like that. And then as you start to withdraw that credit, those incomes have to shrink. And when it starts to shrink, then consumers start to spend less, then people get laid off, then we go into a recession. And that recession reduces the amount of credit in the whole economy. And that cycle usually takes about five to 10 years to go through that cycle. Mm. So you go through from having very low interest rates to having higher interest rates and then come down into a recession where nobody wants to borrow anything, nobody's got any money, and then banks lower interest rates to stimulate borrowing. Yeah. That's the beginning of the next cycle. So where I thought you were going to go was that the person who is, uh, who's lending the bank um, is loaning, 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 and then uh, somebody comes in and they're marginal and the bank just says, you know what, we don't want to loan to you anymore, so we're going to raise our rates. Like the bank chooses to raise the rates, but instead you said the Fed nationally raises the rates. It can be either, but typically what happens is the Federal Reserve starts to put the brakes on before maybe the private sector feels it's necessary. Because the private sector, okay. remember, is being driven big by profit. brother in effect. Yeah, you got you to remember how we ended up in a gigantic bubble with uh, with real estate loans is that more aggressive banks like Washington Mutual and Countryside were making loans to more and more uncreditworthy people, subprime mm-hmm. borrowers, mm-hmm. in competition with Wells Fargo, Bank of America, and the mainstream banks. And yeah. that meant the mainstream banks weren't making enough loans, so they got more and more liberal in their lending policies. The whole thing starts to get more and more liberal just from pure competition. Yeah. And so the banks are usually not the ones that start to pull it in because they can't. If they pull it in, they suddenly don't have anybody to lend God, to. But isn't that a huge difference between banks being publicly traded and publicly owned versus the old locally owned by somebody you recognized who knew the people who were careful about the loans that they made? Isn't that extraordinary? Gigantic, huge change in my lifetime. Yeah, because you're right. Because the competition naturally created a situation in which banks were competing for worse and worst customers (laughs) just to make the loans because they got so many fees paid on each loan that they made. Right, or or competing for better and better customers to give them more and more money than they should have. True. That totally. Was, that also was, true. That was sober, right? And, yeah. And so now, and that of course, didn't you happen had, uh, in the old small banks because they could lose their bank if they made too many bad loans. And here's the other thing that really changed is that the federal government in the 90s set up 
quasi-private companies to buy those loans yeah. from the banks. That's which the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, right? Yeah, which gave the banks much more reason to be aggressive and not be so sober about who to lend to. And this was done in part to eliminate racial discrimination, redlining of communities. The, the federal government came in and said, look, we'll just take the loans that you're worried about making off your hands. And then since we'll do that, we're going to put a gun at your head and say, you better make those loans. And so those two things together went to just massively increase the amount of lending uh, that was going on for all sorts of things. But in, in particular for housing. Um, and compare that then to the old days where um, I grant you that there are absolutely many cases of racial exclusion, people oh, making decisions massive. based on race. Huh, no question about it. But on the other side of that coin is you've got somebody sitting in the office there who's going to lend out depositor money to someone for 20 years or 30 years. And they would absolutely have the, the bank's lifeline on on in their hands if they made bad loans they wouldn't get the money back and yeah. if they couldn't get the money back they couldn't pay back the depositors and the bank would fail that was the old days yeah and that was much more sober lending you didn't have these kinds of gigantic and of course you didn't have as much money in the market you didn't have as much credit out there mm -hmm. uh, and so a great deal of what's happened in the US economy in the last 40 years has been the result of this sort of shadow money creation as a result of massive more amounts of credit mm. uh, out there to individuals it's and to corporations. Of, it's kind of the yin and the yang. It's the we've had a huge, huge expansion of the economy. And, and as you said, massive venture capital money available in the U.S. and now in other countries, too. It's all over the place. And huge change in the stock market growing unbelievably in a small amount of years compared to the past. And and that wouldn't have happened probably without those changes in policy. But then on no. the other hand, you end up with these bubbles that get burst. Right. And that's Dalio's biggest concern right now is that it, when you go from one short credit cycle to another over a five to 10 year period, one after the other, what happens at the end of each of these cycles is you have more debt than you did before. It, it doesn't all get wiped out in a recession. The, the debt stays a little larger from the previous mm -hmm. credit cycle. And if you go through a large number of these, you finally come up to a place where the overall load of debt is simply unsustainable. And at that point, you're at the end of the long credit cycle. And Ray thinks that that happens every 50 to 75 years, which oh. means we're there. We're, we're in the 75-year area right now since the Great Depression. And Wait, the end what's of the a long last... cycle? So a long cycle is a certain number of short cycles or? Yeah, it's a, it's a limited number of short cycles in the range of, you know, 12 or, you know, between seven and 12 short cycles builds up so much debt that hasn't been released, uh, mm -hmm. hasn't been removed, that ultimately the society can't sustain it. And you have some sort of of massive restructuring. And that restructuring in the in countries takes the form of massive currency devaluation, typically, or massive inflation followed by currency devaluation. In other words, you have to get rid of the debt some way or another. And the way Argentina did it back in the year 2000 was to simply, you know, you had $100,000 in, in Argentine money in the bank on Monday, and you woke up on Tuesday morning, and you had 10000 they just simply devalued the currency 10 to 1. Mm -hmm. And that it means you're paying back debt uh, 
with massively uh, inflated dollars. So the people who are owed money get massively screwed. And, um, and that typically is what happens at the end of one of these gigantic credit cycles is that you end up with all of the people who are typically creditors, they owe money or they're owed money. Those guys get screwed. And mm-hmm. we saw a piece of that happening in 2009, right? When all the banks, these banks started to fail, the federal government very wisely jumped in there and protected them to keep us from going into a depression because we would have gone into a depression worldwide, no question about it. But now what we see is that this cheap credit has created an enormous number, uh, an enormous disparity in income and assets between people who have money starting 10, 20 years ago and people who didn't. As assets got artificially cheaper and cheaper, people who could get assets, people who had money, have benefited massively compared to people who didn't have money. And so the rich over the last 20 years have gotten much, much richer. And the have-nots, when we don't call them poor in the United States, but the have-less or have-nots, the middle class and the lower classes, they have not. They've fallen behind. Their incomes have gone down in buying power. And as a result, you end up with the beginning of social unrest, yeah, which is what we're starting to see now. We were talking about a few episodes. Yeah. And that is reflected in populist leaders like Trump is is considered a populist leader. He's running not on so much a left or a right agenda, but on what is what is popular, what what drives people emotionally. So running on protect the border because people feel like. Uh, people are coming from outside the United States and taking their jobs or coming from outside the United States and keeping wages low um, and as competition, wages can't rise. Um, you see people in the steel belt voting for Trump who have never voted for a Republican in their lives because he's saying, look, we're going to protect you guys. We're going to put tariffs on China. We're going to drive the money back into the United States. So these are all things that start to happen when you have these crises coming in debt. And we saw the same thing in the 30s. This is what gave rise to uh, Roosevelt, what ran as a populist. And we're going to put a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage. Um, Hitler rising as a populist. Uh, Stalin, Mussolini. Um, I mean, you name it. All these countries around the world started going through this giant depression, started electing, Hitler was actually elected, uh, mm-hmm. populist leaders. And, and the result is absolutely dangerous. And so that's where we are. We're in a, we're in a dangerous, dangerous place right now. And uh, we'll see what happens. We see that China is arming up. China just recently told its military, be prepared to defeat the United States. That happened a couple of days ago. Um, and so you see the rise of enmity between countries as they try to balance out for themselves, you know, America first, China first, whoever first. And that starts to give rise to a, a lack of confidence in trade. I mean, we're, we're headed down a really rocky road here. There's no question about it. Now, whether we come yeah. out of it, we'll see. We'll see how wise <laughs> our leaders are. So happy new year, everybody. <laughs> yeah. Pretty sobering way to start the year off here. I apologize for that. <clears throat> no, but I, I think... mean, we all know about that stuff. It's just to think about it with um, with an eye towards investing and the market. It's really sobering because it's like, all right, I can make this is kind of where we started. Actually, I can make really good decisions 
about where to put my money in which really good companies and something from the outside could still mess it all up. Or at least mess it up for a while. For I, a while. I think Warren Buffett is right. I think <clears throat> in the long run, America is a great bet. You wouldn't want to bet against America. W- w- really, the old saying is when America gets a cold, the rest of the world gets pneumonia. And that's <laughs> really probably true. We're the largest consumer in the world by quite a lot. And you can see the pressure on China that Trump's putting on China now as he starts to make it harder for the Chinese to compete against American companies. China has slid into or very near a recession. Their stock market has dropped enormously. There's a lot of pressure now on the Chinese government. So what are they doing? They're ramping up the the, the sword, right? Mm-hmm. They're taking the plowshare and they're beating it into a sword and they're ramping up their rhetoric. Russia I mean, the same. Russia's the same, yeah. I mean, we are in a time now where... And by the way, this isn't Trump's fault, right? This isn't somebody's fault. What it is is that this debt cycle has gone to a point now where the responses over the last 30 years have been such to to create problems with American middle class. No question about it. We have been shipping $500 billion a year worth of cash to China, making China stronger, making America weaker. Uh, we have been shipping American jobs to China by the thousands. And so, and that is ultimately going to come back in this form of disgruntled American citizens who aren't happy to just sit on welfare somewhere. Well, so as an investor, how does one look at the situation and see the turmoil and the potential political problems that could interfere in business? How do you how do you look at that? And say, okay, here's how I'm going to deal with it. Here's how I'm going to handle it. Here's how I'm going to uh, plan my my investing. Right. So what I'm going to do is what everybody should do, I think, is what Warren says to do. If you are going to be an investor, meaning you're going to invest your money in individual companies, then you want to stay with the basics and just be sure that you're being very careful about it. Be very, very patient in this kind of a a marketplace. Um, We don't know where we are. We don't know if we're in 19... 29, 1930, with the market starting to tumble, and you jump in right here, and then it's down 80 or 90% later on. And the thing is, people have been voicing these concerns now for a number of years. For sure. Um, Including me. Right, totally. And we uh, really, since we started this podcast, we've been talking about how the market could crumble at any moment. And it hasn't because of various frankly, I think, outside forces, the Fed, the presidential election, the tax cuts, all these things have um, have really influenced our markets. And I think also some caution on the side of investors, like there haven't been many IPOs until lately. So we haven't had that part of the like excitement around IPOs and tech companies that have, has happened before. But yeah, I mean, it's hard to know if it's going to keep going up. Or well, if it's I'll, I'll tell crash. you the, the basic things that people we've start been to do. It could crash tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> the basic things people start to do when they're when more and more fear starts to come up um, is that they they start to pull back their capital, right? Mm-hmm. So here we have this massive number of baby boomers, seventy five million baby boomers, who have been putting their money into the market steadily now for forty years, 
through 401ks and IRAs. And now they're looking at the market start to tumble. And there's not one of them out there that isn't worried about their retirement. And I think as interest rates start to rise, they're going to see people shift from the stock market to bonds and be willing to take 3 or 4 or 5% and have money rather than worrying about their money disappearing in the stock market for the next 10 years. You're going to see the boomers start to pull out. And that's well, going and to, of course, massively means, affect the market. Yeah. What that means is that then prices go down, right? Yep. And so... The other thing that happens is people start to run toward gold, toward hard assets like that when there's fear of, of depression and war because gold has traditionally been a safe refuge for uh, fear-based investing. But Warren Buffett, I think, very clearly said that you could take all the gold in the world and put it into the infield in, in a baseball stadium, in a, in a, in a cube. <clears throat> and it doesn't do anything. It just sits there and looks at you and you can pat it. But you could take the same amount of value at 1200 an ounce and you could buy 18 Exxons and all the farmland in America. <clears throat> so if you were to think, where do I want to be if there's going to be a giant recession here? Then the answer would be, you want to be in companies that people have to go spend money at. Like the so-called recession-proof companies. I don't know. Is there such a thing? I don't think there's such a thing exactly, but that's how people talk about them. Like, um, this is not an entire company, but like lipstick is a recession-proof item because women always seem to buy lipstick no matter what. Yeah. If I could, if I could get uh, a lipstick manufacturer slash retailer like Ulta or something like that, if I could get that massively on sale, that would be an interesting company. Entertainment companies do well for the low end of the entertainment world, like maybe a Netflix um, <laughs> in, a, yeah. in a big recession, depression. Energy not a companies, low end company. <laughs> no, they're not low end at all right now. And there's a reason for that because yeah. we're not the only ones who can think this way. So they're going to get bid up. But you also might think of companies that have done well in previous massive recessions like, <laughs> I hate to say it, but Chipotle Mexican Grill has did yeah. extremely well in the 2008-2009 recession. Why? Because people quit going to restaurants. Doesn't it seem a bit early to <clears throat> be talking about, like, what to own through a recession? I don't know. Like, we've been, we've been talking about it for a while, and it hasn't happened, and it will at some point for sure. Well, but the thing is... Like, you, you what own... does one do during... You know what I mean? Like, okay, so I kind of feel like I'm just going to go on with my going on and yeah, essentially that's right keep finding companies that i am interested in and i can understand and research them and get to know them and see if i fall in love with any of them and see and what just price be, they're just at. be really sure you're sober about their prospects over the next 10 years and remember the 10 10 rule we don't buy anything for 10 minutes unless we're willing to sit on it without a stock market for the next 10 years and that will take you through any recession. And with that, I think that is an excellent point to stop. And next so, time... Sobering, um, though. Sobering. But wait, I have, I have a quick shout out. Greg mm. sent us an email, or he sent me an email to both of us. And, um, and in the email, I just have to say thank you, Greg. And Dad, I wanted to tell you this. He said... To me, the podcasts are not just about the investing, but about how a father and daughter have patience and respect for each other talking about a topic that generally takes years to learn. 
Aww. And I just thought that was so sweet. And That's I wanted so to cool. tell you. Well, he's right. I mean, I'm very, very fortunate that I have such incredible kids. Um, and you are really fun to work with. I, <laughs> I really enjoy it. <laughs> well, so I'm looking forward so to fun. 2019. I think it's going to be a really exciting year for investors. I think yeah, I think it's going to be really up and down. And we're mm-hmm. going to have to talk about more like immediate stuff than we have been. Yeah, it's, it's yep. let's, be talk, let's talk about more about where we think it's going to go next time. Like, yeah, are we in I, the 70s or are we in the 30s here? And I want to talk about these IPOs, which I know we never talk about, but I mean, it's such a big for deal for people reason. who like live in the world that Uber and Airbnb and Lyft and Slack are all probably going to IPO this year. So yeah, now if only they'll give us a good price. So we'll yeah. talk about that next time. All okay. right. Until then. Time Thanks, to go everybody. Play. Bye. Bye. Hey guys, thanks for listening to Invested. If you enjoyed this episode and you want more information, show notes, and more episodes, visit us at investedpodcast.com. There's a special offer waiting for podcast listeners to attend my three-day investing workshop absolutely free. So just head to investedpodcast.com. Everything discussed on this podcast is either my opinion or Danielle's opinion and is not to be taken as investing advice because... I am not your investment advisor, nor have I considered your personal situation as your fiduciary. This podcast is for your entertainment and education only, and I hope you enjoyed it.